Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about food history. I am joined by Penn Vogler who is in London. She is the author of Scoff, a history of food and class in Britain. In the book, which was published late last year, Penn investigates British food traditions, from humble fish and chips to posh dinner parties, and even how the cutlery is laid out. Welcome, Penn. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. Thank you for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed the book. Let's jump to the back of the book first. Uh, The bibliography is uh, epic. How many books did you read for your research? Well, you do know something, I should count them up, shouldn't I? Uh, A lot, and uh, probably hundreds. And some of them stayed by my side the whole time I was writing, and they were kind of my lodestars. So one, which I got, two which I got from from a books, actually. One was Stephen Mennell's All Manners of Food, and the other was Ray Tannehill's Food and History. And they they were kind of relevant about everything. And then obviously there are some cookbooks which I constantly reference, you know, some of the famous ones like Hannah Glass from 1747, Eliza Acton from um, 1845, and then Mrs. Beaton from 1861. Sadly not first editions, that would have been lovely, but, um, you know, reprints or sort of much, much later on editions. And then quite a lot of things I read in the British Library. So I must have read things histories of very specific things like histories of the potato or histories of the tomato or histories of fish and chips and so I owe this huge debt to some food historians who've really explored things in incredible detail. So do you have a collection of historic cookbooks? I really wish I did. Most of the things I have are sort of re- issues of things. I wish that I'd started collecting historic cookbooks about maybe 20 years ago, but I think in the time, in the last maybe 10-15 years, food history has become much more of a big subject, an interesting subject for people, and cookbooks I suspect were easy to pick up for not that much money, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, and they're not now. So now I just make do with whatever I've got. But I do have quite a lot of cookbooks, yes. So the book is divided into chapters dedicated to one particular foodstuff or or a particular phenomenon. Let's talk about tea, the meal. Yes. I'm from the West Midlands, so for me, tea is my evening meal, which confuses people over here in Canada. It is incredibly confusing. And historically, it's been incredibly confusing in Britain because it's been driven all the time by this sort of um, push-pull, push-pull of people wanting to change either the hour at which they eat or the, the way that they describe the meal or the drink or whatever it is. And the, the, our idea of social class and social status has been a massive factor in that kind of push-pull, push-pull thing. And so, um in in the north um and in in if you go back to peeps time for example in the 17th century everybody would have their dinner at about 12 o'clock or one o'clock um in the middle of the day and that was your main meal and you might have people around for dinner and it would still be you know very early afternoon and that carried on in places where work was a really significant factor in, uh, you know, in the north and in agricultural reasons and in the Midlands. 
But in the South, there was much more of a kind of push-pull of sort of um, people wanting to be more aristocratic, wanting to have a kind of higher status. And so they started to have their dinner much later until it might be, you know, eight o'clock or something. And then you have this other thing, tea, which is sometimes called afternoon tea, which has to fill that gap between lunch, which is also a new meal, and dinner. Anyway, it is incredibly confusing. But in Britain, we really uh, place each other by those words. You know, where are you from? Where are you from geographically? Where are you from culturally? By what you call your lunch, or your tea, your dinner, your supper. So now we're going into geography and class already. Um, it seems strange to mark someone's class by the time that they eat a particular meal. How odd. Yes, I think it's a lot to do with, um, it's a lot to do with a kind of an upper class who would try, and a middle class who were always chasing them. You know, so the a kind of upper class or an aristocratic class would demarcate themselves will say we're this type of person because we're going to eat later you know we're going to eat at four o'clock or five o'clock or six o'clock there's this lovely passage in a Jane Austen when she writes to her sister so same family and she's saying oh here we are in the countryside we're having our dinner at 3 30 and she's saying your her sister then was in London she said and she said you'll be having your dinner at six o'clock you will despise us um and she's joking, of course, but she's also because she's Jane Austen, she's sort of not joking. She's also telling us something very specific about uh, that idea of scoffing at somebody. That's the, hence the title of my book or kind of despising somebody for, for the way that they eat and when they eat. Right. Tea, the drink. Um, I thought you went pretty light on that. Uh, you probably could have written an entire book on that subject. Well, it's interesting. Um, there's the the kind of the doyen of food of um, tea historians is I think he's American. He's called William Ukers, and he wrote a two-volume history of tea, um, which uh, I would love to have a copy of the original. I think he published it in about the nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty-five. I think. Um, so you know, try and shrink that down into one chapter, but huge amounts of politics and history associated with it, because um, when tea first started being served in Britain, everybody just loved it, and people in in working families loved it because it turned a cold meal into a hot meal. You know, so one of the reasons that you know northern and working families would still talk about their tea, even though their tea might just be some cold ham and some bread and some pickles or something. If you have a cup of tea, it feels like a hot meal. Um, but if you go back to the you know to the 18th century, if you look at um, Samuel Johnson, for example, who loved tea, he wrote this very famous defence of tea about how much he loved it. But he said, you know, I love it because because of my intellectual endeavour. And if you're a working person, you don't need it. So, you know, tea is not for you. It's for us intellectuals, us middle classes. Um, and so there've been all kinds of people who saying, you know, tea is appropriate for you working classes or it's not appropriate for you working classes. And it's um, it's been a bit of a kind of tug of war over the, the, the spirit and soul of a cup of tea ever since it was first introduced into Britain. I'm seeing a group of workmen stopping for a cup of tea at 11 because they have to. Well, I always associate tea with a break. 
workmen usually have sugar in their tea and again that's a massive sort of for some people that's a bit of a class divide you know if you have six spoons of sugar in your tea it's probably because you want the energy um and obviously the kind of tea we even i don't know if you have this expression in canada we have this expression builder's tea do you have that i've used it but no one knows what i'm talking about so builder's tea means a cup of ordinary tea made with a tea bag um, but Bill, a builder would never, my brother is a builder, he would never say builder's tea, you know, none of, the, none of his builder friends would ever say builder's tea, they would just say tea. And I think this expression builder's tea is a sort of way for people who feel a bit kind of, to be, to sort of show their kind of, you know, their matiness with builders and to show their kind of street cred. And also it's a kind of middle class way of, choosing your sort of cultural references you might you know just eat organic sourdough bread but then you'll talk about builder's tea and it's a kind of way of showing that you're relaxed and you're not driven by this kind of class thing even though you actually probably are because we all are so you talk about humble foods as as well as fancy ones uh, there are chapters i was thrilled to see on cornish pasties and pork pies um, why did you think it was important to talk about humble foods as well as the fancy ones? Um, well, for a start, pasties and pork pies are, they might, are they humble? The pie never used to be a very humble thing. You know, if you look at um, images of kind of Tudor or even possibly medieval feasting right up to Victorian times, you'd have these incredible, huge decorated pies um, and pasties and going back to we mentioned Pepys before but Pepys mentions the venison pasty something like 60 times you know in his diaries it can't be that many but many times in his diaries and he loves a venison pasty but a venison pasty to him is like a whole haunch of venison covered in a pasty you know a, a pastry case beautifully decorated so a pasty has become quite humble because what we're interested in now is this is this this idea of a Cornish pasty, um, which is a very different thing. You know, it's it has a you know it has a kind of uh, well until we just until just January the first when we left uh, the EU, it used to have a what's called a PGI, a protected geographical indicator, meaning that they had to have a certain amount of you know vegetables, a certain amount of meat. It had a kind of law about what had to be in it and given that pasties actually are a very humble Cornish pasties come from a much much more humble tradition than the peeps you know venison pasty tradition where you would just put anything you had into it you might put mackerel into it you might put a bit of potato into it you might put um, some herbs that you gather on the cliff tops into it um, so that has a very kind of humble you know uh sort of history but that history doesn't go back as far as the the history of the kind of the grand you know venison pasty there's not much because and this is the difficult thing about food for workers is that there's very very little um historical reference to it but there are pictures of miners from the early 20th century i think late 19th century with their pasties in their hands which are very nice but pork pies, interestingly, you mentioned, they, they're slightly better documented, slightly better documented, because they were, they were kind of talent spotted by um, 
by huntsmen in Leicestershire who noticed that their their hunt servants had this very sturdy little pork pie in their pockets and that they would, you know, uh, take them out and eat them when they were handing over fresh horses or something in the middle of the hunt um, and realised that actually they were a very good picnic, a sort of sturdy picnic um, food to, to take them through the hunting day. One thing I was surprised to learn in the book is that the history of curries in England goes back a long, long way. Yes, I mean, the history of our spiced dishes goes right back to the Crusades. And when the Crusaders, you know, uh, came back from the what was then the Holy Land, they brought back this taste for, you know, cinnamon and ginger and all kinds of spices that we don't really use, like really use anymore, things like long pepper. Um, and it's quite interesting, a lot of a lot of the dishes that we love now, like uh, Christmas pudding or, you know, uh, or bread sauce or something, which is kind of bread spiced with cloves, come from those very early dishes. But we didn't call it curry. Um, but when, when the East India Company, so-called, started kind of going to, you know, people started going to India and coming back, living in India, and then coming back, a lot of them had developed a taste for curry and they wanted to re-carry on eating it back in London. And so the first recipe for curry, I, I think we have in Britain, is dates from 1747. And it's not a great recipe, actually. It's a kind of chicken curry with lots of white pepper. Let's talk about class again. You say avocado is the, the middle class signifier. Uh, I'd argue for balsamic vinegar, but let's debate that. You know what what about in Canada because some an American said to me once she said she said in America avocados just grow on trees but here it's posh <laughs> you know? so maybe maybe the avocado in Canada doesn't have the British obsession um, that that we have but I think I think what happened I was really interested in the avocado and I thought where has this crazy idea come from that this pear is posh and I think you really can trace it back to a very deliberate uh, kind of marketing by the avocado, what's it called, the avocado board, I think, of California, that positioned it as something very Mediterranean and very healthy. That gets picked up by, um, you know, the kind of wellness and kind of clean eating people who start to love it, you know, because avocados are great, they are good for you and all the rest of it. Um, and I think just in Britain, because what our, our kind of, class and food antenna are so alert to everything we were delighted to pick up on this idea that um, having avocado toast makes you middle class and we love to both eat it and to laugh about it you know we love to I read I read pieces in um, a newspaper saying you know the definition of being middle class is you know is eating is having avocado toast or there's this thing called avocado hand when you prod your uh, avocado to try and get the stone out you know with a knife and prod it too hard you jab your hand and then you have to go to A&E you know you have to go to the hospital to have your hand bandaged up and there was this great newspaper headline saying avocado doctors say avocado hand is the most middle class injury ever you know because it's got something to do with the avocado yes uh, things change I was thinking about when I was a child and I would get an orange in my Christmas stocking 
and I would always wonder why my parents did that when there's a whole bowl of them in the kitchen. We used to put them back in the, in the food in the fruit bowl and hope my mum didn't notice. <laughs> yes, but for my mum, growing up in the in the late forties, an orange getting an orange was a revelation. Yes. Well, was your mum? Your mum obviously grew up in Britain. I mean, rationing yep. didn't end until nineteen fifty four, and so for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people growing up in the war, they didn't see a banana. They might have seen oranges once in a blue moon. And one of the th things I think was really interesting was uh, how successful rationing was in terms of persuading people to accept it, it because it was necessary and it was fair. And that was and given the kind of unfairness and the inequality of our food system today, you know, rationing actually brought equality the best the most equality we've ever had in Britain in terms of in nutritional terms to people and people did genuinely accept it but they would always niggle and they'd always complain and they'd always say you know oh it's not fair that kids get bananas because kids have never seen bananas they don't they don't know what they're missing you know you should give the bananas to us oldies or whatever there's always a reason for me having better food in the you know in rationing than my neighbor having better food so in the book, you, you feature some historical recipes. It sounds like you've cooked them. Is that the case? Yes, definitely. I mean, I cooked all of them and, um, uh, you know, I give a kind of a modern method. And I chose them because um, I, I just chose each of them to try and find recipes that were, in, that had an interesting history. Um, like, so for example, one of my recipes is pasta basically. And I put it in because um, the history of pasta in Britain, the first pasta recipe in Britain is from the 1390s. It's crazy. You know, we have uh, the kind of old, you know, Middle English equivalent of what's called lasagna, of pappardelle, and of macaroni, all in, you know, medieval Britain. So I put that in and I made it. And I have to say my pasta is not quite as good as the pasta you can buy in the shops but you know it does work all you need is a bit of flour and some water it's quite extraordinary and I made things like nettle soup uh, which I was really interested in I was very interested in kind of uh, what's it like really delicious I was surprised I thought it would be a bit kind of tough and blah, but it's it tastes very soft and kind of quite herby I would definitely recommend it but de but from soft nettles you know the new nettles in the spring in the book you talk about some of the international influences on British food, the colonies, France, grand tours of Italy. Where do you think British cuisine will be in 20 or 30 years time? Well, this is the million dollar question because it, I think we're at a compass point, you know, if we go right now we could kind of steam off into a kind of <laughs> a future where we'll be in a good place in 20 or 30 years time but to do that I think we need to to we probably need to become actually more British we probably need to become more local and healthier and we probably to become more equal and I think the the kind of main thrust of my book is that although the history of food and class I find it incredibly entertaining you know it's full of fantastically good stories the result that we've got in Britain is a very very unequal food system 
Um, and I think class is behind a lot of that, and I think we just need to recognise it. Um, so we need to make decisions now about people, everybody's right to this to kind of good food. We need to figure out what good food is. Is it available? Is it accessible? If the answer is yes, and is it scalable? Can everybody get it? And those are questions that we are asking at the moment. I mean, we do have this, you know, we have all these problems with um, school kids not getting fed properly because of the pandemic. Um, and they are questions upmost in lots of people's minds. So I hope it leads to somewhere better. It sounds like you're talking about foods that are cheap as opposed to foods that are healthy. Yes, I think um, it's interesting, this idea of cheap. Um, I think the whole way that the food system is um, is kind of structured to kind of push out cheap food disadvantages people, disadvantages a lot of people who, you know, who eat food that isn't necessarily very good for them. And I think some people say, you know, oh, well, you know, you wouldn't want food to not be, you know, you don't want to make food more expensive, do you? Um, and I think actually we're looking at that. I think we look at things in the wrong way. I think you need to think about what is good food. And the idea that you can carry on just selling cheap food that is actually full of additives, which is ultra high processed, which is maybe carcinogenic, who knows, um, because it's cheap, as though being cheap is the key thing. I think that's just looking at it completely the wrong way. We need to figure out how to make good food available to, 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 to everybody. And if people can't afford it, then you need to figure out how to get other people, you know, to make sure that people can afford it. It sounds like the debate that Marcus Rashford is having with the government at the moment. Yeah, he really has. And I think there are some individuals who are really, really helping to drive it. And this is, going back to the history, I think this is what has happened in history. Even though we tend to see things in terms of, you know, a government makes this law or it makes this tax and this is what changes it. There are also individuals like Marcus Rashford, like Charles Dickens, like this amazing cook called Alexis Sawyer, who took himself off to the Crimea and worked with Florence Nightingale to feed soldiers. And they are the people who kind of get everybody to open their eyes and see what the real situation is. Um, and we should just support them, I think. Indeed. Uh, a personal question. What was your comfort food during 2020? Oh, my comfort food from any, any day, any year of the past, I won't say how many, of the past many, half century, is always tea and toast for me. Toast is just the best. Hot butter toast or with jam or marmalade? Uh, very specifically I love tea and two pieces of toast one with marmite uh, which might not be a Canadian thing either and one with marmalade and I'm afraid it's got to be homemade marmalade um, and I just had a lovely sticky time in the kitchen last weekend actually making 16 pots of marmalade okay one last question what book or books are you currently reading Oh, I, I'm always a bit of a serial uh, bigamist, I think, when it comes to books, if that's an okay expression. I, um, I've just finished, actually, John Mullen's book on Dickens called The Artful Dickens, which I really loved. I, I think John Mullen is always so insightful. And Grace Dent, who's a big um, food 
uh, person here. She she wrote this brilliant memoir about her food sort of story called Hungry, which is great fun and very very in- interesting um, about her sort of working class background in Cumbria in the north and why they ate the kind of foods that they ate. Um, I, I mentioned Alexis Sawyer, and there's an old, there's an oldish biography by uh, Ruth Cowan of his that I'm reading. Um, yeah, and then when I'm not a food historian, I work for Penguin Books, and so there's always things that I'm reading for uh, for Penguin, and I'm reading a book by a great uh, Canadian right, um, forest ecologist called Susan Simard about uh, her work in the in, with trees and you know the wood what was what was dubbed the wood wide web about how trees communicate to each other. Um, so quite a wide range. I'll have to look that one up. We're not publishing it till May, so I get okay. that's a lucky the lucky part of my job is I get to read books. Drop me a line, I'll I'll take a look at that one. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Penn Vogler, who is the author of Scoff. A History of Food and Class in Britain. Thanks, Ben. Well, thanks very much, Richard. It was really nice talking to you. They were lovely questions. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Ape Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.